0: From Kirko Media.
1: So what you gonna do about it?
0: Strange times. A bit overwhelming, actually. Politically, meeting in the middle is no longer assuming Democrats versus Republicans, but now far right or far left of either party versus centrists can be just as frustrating. Frankly, we find ourselves challenged by our own political team these days. Our guest today, Bill Kristol, is an internationally recognized political analyst, who had been known for his conservative approach, but as a level-headed centrist, he's subject to a tidal wave of far and radical right Republicans whose behavior can sometimes boggle the mind. His observations and commentary on all major news channels show that he understands our challenges. Let's see if he has any solutions. So stick around for part one of the Bill Crystal politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Once again, my co-host Jane Albrecht is an international trade attorney who fought for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials around the globe. She's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar, and she's also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Hey, Jane, how you doing?
1: Fine. Always good to be here, and welcome, Bill.
0: Bill Crystal is that infamous American neoconservative political analyst that you see almost daily on CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, Fox. Everybody wants him for his insight and candor. He was the founder of the political magazine The Weekly Standard, and he is now the editor at large of The Bulwark. And he has his own podcast aptly named Conversations with Bill Crystal. I'm going to avoid the Bill versus Billy subject, as he must be really tired of it. So, welcome, Bill Crystal. Nice to have you.
2: Good to be with you both.
0: So, let's get to it. Is there a path to a Republican Party that focuses on governing people rather than the far right shock and awe politics?
2: there is a path, whether it's a very wide path or a very narrow path, it's going to be very hard to navigate is a real question. And I'm fairly pessimistic in the short term because of the Transformation of the party over the last five six years. There are already problems and indications of problems. But Trump has both done a lot of damage and is a symbol, I suppose, real change in the party. I think that goes way beyond just having some views that people might disagree with to being uninterested in governing and quite interested in a very destructive and demagogic politics. So I am short term pessimistic about the Republican Party.
0: If you had to be kind of the Google Maps of how do we get from here to a place where there's a Republican Party that we all respect. And appreciate what are some of the first directions that you would give? I mean, it would be
2: helpful if Trumpism didn't work politically and electorally, if Republicans paid a price for going in that direction. And they paid some price, obviously. Trump was not reelected. Unfortunately, from my point of view, It wasn't a blowout in 2020. The Republicans picked up House seats. They almost held the Senate. They ended up losing it in Georgia on January 5th, but they have 50 senators. They have a majority of state governorships. They picked up seats, actually, in state legislatures. They think they're going to win the House in 2022. So usually a party fixes itself when it has to fix itself, when it's been repudiated by the voters, either at the state level or the federal level. But that really hasn't happened decisively enough, I'm afraid, in this case, a B, sometimes parties don't fix themselves when they're repudiated. Look at the California Republican Party. They just kind of descend into irrelevance to some degree. And and that's, it's hard to believe a national party, one of our two major parties can do that. And of course, the scary thing is that the party may succeed by being Trumpy.
0: Well, certainly it's on its way to succeeding right now. Everything that they're doing, no matter how outrageous, it seems to be working. Well, yes and no.
2: They did lose both houses of Congress the presidency. Joe Biden's reasonably popular. He's already passed one big economic package and probably will pass another's. You know, so, I mean, it depends on how you look at it. But I think the dynamic within the party remains, from my point of view, bad in the sense that demagoguery is rewarded, extremism is rewarded, conspiracy theories are not repudiated. And for me, the biggest example and moment where this came clear january 6th i mean november 3rd trump lost took him a few days took the the world a few days to even be sure he had but republicans gradually accommodated to that trump didn't but one could have thought in maybe December that, you know, the fever will break, people will drift away from Trump. It's not going to be a, a noble exercise of confessing they were wrong or of repudiating him in his way of politics, but a kind of gradual, you know, just leaving it behind. I think that was not an unreasonable thing to hope for. It wouldn't have been, as I say, the most noble thing in the world, but sometimes that's how it works in politics. But January 6th, I mean, the fact that that has not changed everything, that Trump hasn't paid a huge price, so far as one can tell, uh, that uh, Trump supporters, to some of the people really involved in propagating the big lie and instigating the violence, haven't paid a huge political price. Then most Republicans are just keeping their heads down and not talking about it. And a lot are just going along. For me, that, that's very bad, a very bad, at
0: least short-term,
2: indicator of where the balance of power is in the Republican Party.
0: So I, I can't help but quote Jane to you for a minute because... Uh-oh, uh-oh. We did talk about this interview before we started it. And okay. She equates some of the first steps out of where the Republican Party is as kind of going to a rehab. She says, when it comes to the Republican condition, in a rehab program, you have to start by identifying your own role in the predicament you find yourself in, and only then can you start down the road of healing. Can the Republicans recognize what resulted in the Donald Trump party?
2: So, I mean, I think some have and some of us have rethought some of the things we were for and some of the people we thought were okay sort of back back in the day. We always thought there were problematic elements in the Republican Party. We fought some of those elements. I certainly spent a lot of time fighting Pat Buchanan and Ron Paul and people like that. We thought we'd sort of defeated them. My friend Charlie Sykes says there was a recessive gene in the Republican Party. And the bad news is it was there. The good news is that it was recessive most of the time and that Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan and John McCain were not fanning those flames or engaging in in that kind of demagoguery. But it was there, it was building up. The second term of President Obama, I think, turns out in retrospect, I hadn't quite seen it at the time, I've got to say. People really went a little off the deep end. And then, of course, with Trump in 2016, it all came together. I personally don't believe that Unless you come to grips with Trump, especially the big lie about the election. But in general, the demagoguery, the mean-spiritedness, the nativism, unless people say no to that. It doesn't mean they have to grovel and apologize for weeks on end. It doesn't mean they have to even say they were wrong necessarily to vote for him once or twice. They can rationalize that with some of the things they think that happened that were okay. But they need to come to grips with with what happened, the most recent Republican president, Trump wasn't just like another set, some random, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a senator, a member of Congress, or, or a random governor somewhere. It was a little embarrassing. He was the Republican president of the United States, supported by the Republican Party at the national level in a very strong and almost uniform way.
0: Well, he didn't start that way. Back in 2015, he was the laughingstock of the Republican Party.
2: One can write a scenario Trump wins. He wins the nomination, sort of fluky in 2016, you know, divided field. He hits on a couple of issues. He beats Hillary Clinton in the general election because she's not such a strong candidate. People want change and so forth. He gets lucky in the Electoral College and the Russians help him. You can then write a scenario, though, where the Republicans who control both the Senate and the House stand up to Trump. They refuse to go along with certain things he wants to do. They make clear that he's president, and obviously they respect that, but they're going to make up their own minds about issues. And you can write a scenario where members of his cabinet really stand up to him, and not just a few of them, and that those few don't just get pushed aside. And where the Republican electorate, of course doesn't seem to have an insatiable appetite for Trump's demagoguery. But that's not the scenario that happened in history. For me, the enabling of Trump by the Republican Party is almost as important as Trump himself. You could have had a Trump who was kind of a one-term sort of president, sort of a fluke, sort of embarrassing, frankly, do some damage. You know, kind of like, I don't know, this is a little unfair, probably, but Jesse Ventura or something as governor of Minnesota, or Schwarzenegger, I think it's unfair to Schwarzenegger, who's a more serious person. But, you know, Schwarzenegger, he's a -a one-term, one-and-a-half-term governor, you know, life goes on afterwards. You could have imagined that with Trump, but that would have required Republicans on the Hill not to sort of uh, go down the path of emulating him and enabling him and imitating him. And once that starts to happen, once the whole party became Trump's party, then everything got deeper, everything sunk deeper the damage was more serious.
1: Bill, for people who haven't been deeply involved in politics, but even for those who have, how did it progress that Trump ran as an outside candidate with no real support from the RNC? Then he gets the party nomination, at which point you begin to work with the RNC. It was very much a big fundraiser. But how did it go from this outside candidate to him really taking over the Republican Party? How does that happen? What were the steps that sort of got the party there?
2: Trump is clever in that way, I think, in some of the things he did. And he was always focused on power, not obviously on policy. He put his own people into certain jobs where he made clear that their continuing in certain jobs would be by following his directives and, and not just following, but being adulatory of him or or, or never tolerating any criticism. And people like me looked at that early on and thought, well, that's ridiculous. You can't have a party with 50, 52, whatever, independently elected Republican members, senators. Senators have pretty big egos. They're elected by the citizens of their states. They're not just going to go along with Trump. Fine, he's the president. He deserves a certain respect and deference if he's from your party. But then I just got Paul Ryan, who'd been in Washington a long time, Speaker of the House. Incidentally, in normal administrations, they don't get that kind of deference. Obama didn't get that kind of deference from his own party, and George W. Bush didn't, and there were rebellions all the time.
1: They could have gone along with him on policies that they agreed with, but they could have drawn a line and they chose never to draw a line. Right.
2: I mean, I think the combination of him being a successful bully, them being cowardly, being smart about you know really punishing a couple who turned who, who, who st- stood up to him and sort of isolating them. And once they had no political futures, the Jeff Flakes of the world and the Bob Corkers, everyone else decided they wanted to have a political future. Giving the establishment types enough that people could rationalize endlessly all the rest of the abasement and the uh, really bad behavior and and the sort of embarrassment that they had to swallow to say they like, he was pretty smart about that. I mean, he, I mean, he saw what issues mattered, the business class, the donors, what are the tax cuts, and the deregulation. A lot of the social conservatives wanted the judges. Those two, he was he stuck with them and he was pretty for all of his craziness or flakiness, Trump, he was pretty disciplined in making sure that he didn't give those core constituencies a reason to desert him. Now, from my point of view, those constituencies could have had a little more courage and not necessarily gone along with them just because they got certain things, but they were in this rationalizing mode. Uh, Fox News and those people were very good at uh, demonizing the Democrats. So God forbid you could actually have the Democrats win anything. That would be just the end of the country. The whole partisanship and polarization and tribalization of our politics kicked into. So a lot of different things happened at once.
1: Was it the fact that he was a prolific fundraiser? Once he hooked up with the RNC, he really was quite a cash cow for them. And how much did that play into it?
2: I think it did a fair amount because politics has become so much about fundraising. And that was kind of Mitch McConnell's calling card. He was a good fundraiser. Then it turns out Trump's an even better fundraiser. But more, I think that what it turned out, Trump could really, I mean, I remember sort of ridiculing this at first. Well, Trump will criticize you and you'll be in trouble as a congressman or as a senator. It's ridiculous. You've been elected maybe often much more than once, more than twice. The president says something critical of you, tweets something critical of you. So what? You know, everyone knows politicians have disagreements. It turned out your numbers could go from 65% approval among Republicans in your district to 35% approval in four days. And I that now, if you're a little more courageous, you say, you know what, I can get some of those numbers back. I can live with that. Maybe I'll lose. It's not the end of the world. But they got. The degree to which they all just decided, oh, my God, this guy can destroy us, you know, a few strokes on, on Twitter. Amazing. And therefore, we're going to just go along with, with almost everything when it's crucial. They, they balked on a couple of things, but very, very few, obviously.
0: We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Taback and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of health care in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co Media. Now, here we are, and 74 million people voted for Trump again after everything.
2: Yeah, after the pandemic. I mean, you know, some of a lot of them wanted, it just wanted a Republican administration. I know people who voted for Trump, obviously. I was disappointed in some of them. For me, one of the lessons, this is a broader thing, but of, of the last four or five years, has been the power of rationalization. I mean, people can talk themselves into a lot of things that if you're on the outside or on the other side of an argument, you just kind of almost can't believe it. Like, really, what, why, yeah, this is not a real, I mean, this is crazy. They're just, but you know what it is, this a little bit the frog in the water, right? You get used to one thing and then something else happens, you kind of, okay, well, I guess I can live with that. And then suddenly you're living with something that's six months before If you had said to some of these senators, you're going to be defending X or ducking questions on Y or refusing to condemn Z, they would have said, Are you crazy? That's not impossible. I think some of it is, what have you mentioned, psychological, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous type thing or whatever, or other people have compared it to, you know, abusing almost family members or something. They rationalize it would be too hard to, you know, he'll change or he's not that bad or there's some good aspects to it. And, you know, it starts off maybe with a very mild thing that you're rationalizing, and a year or two later, it's something pretty dreadful. And I don't mean to compare politics to, you know, really dreadful personal things, but I think there's a little bit of that.
0: Well, but it is, Bill. It, it is like a cult, and pretty soon you can find yourself drinking Kool-Aid.
2: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it wasn't quite that bad, but... <laughs> I mean so someone like Sean Spicer, whom I knew slightly we all knew, Washington, a Republican operative type, not the most uh, talented, I wouldn't say of the of the press spokesman types, but you know, kind of a regular person, he, didn't, he wasn't He didn't get up and lie every day for 12 hours. And then he goes to work for Trump and he's saying things that are just manifestly ludicrous. I mean, ludicrous, right? And right from the beginning, from the White House podium, not from the RNC, not from some campaign somewhere. So far, some campaign for Senate, they're exaggerating, but from the White House. And somehow at first people were, whoa, look, at that's lying. He can't be doing that. He's going to pay a big price. I mean, how many times did we all hear that? They're going to pay a price for this. Uh, No one's going to let him get away with this.
0: Well, he turned out to be right with his whole Fifth Avenue thing.
2: Totally. That was the deepest insight he had. I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, you know, they would support me. And that was absolutely true. And But individually, what happened to someone like that? I don't know if so well at all, but people who had a certain code, I mean, they weren't maybe profiles courage before that, but they were certain code of things they wouldn't do. It all just crumbled. I worked in the White House and we had, this was in the George H.W. Bush administration, and we had a real sense that this is the White House. Whatever we did in our other walks of life when we were I was a professor and people were in business and people were in politics at other levels, you have to behave in a certain way. Now we weren't, God knows, paragons of virtue and people uh, said things that turned out to be you know, not entirely true and they cut corners, I mean, it's just like any place. But Marlon Fitzwater, who was George H.W. Bush's press secretary, refused to say the words Democratic and Republican from the White House podium. So he thought, I'm not like the Republican National Committee press secretary. I'm not Mitch McConnell or you know, the equivalent press secretary. I'm the president of the United States spokesman. He would say at times, I don't agree with his criticism of the president, or I think this is an unfortunate vote by the Senate. You know, He obviously had positions, but he would not engage in partisan politics. He just thought that is wrong. And of course, and we all try to live up to some version of that, you might say. And that gradually, not disintegrated, but was corroded over the years since the, uh, you know, 1990 or so, but the degree to which with Trump, just everything collapsed. And again, decent people whom we knew, I knew, who had served in the George W. Bush White House, you know, suddenly were just justifying things that they would have been shocked and appalled by if it had happened in the White House they served in. A decade earlier. And the decent people did their best. Now I'm not one who criticizes everyone who went in. I mean, if you went in and tried to do your best for the country's sake, for national security, Jim Mattis and people like that, I think it's a reasonable judgment to have made. But almost everyone who went in to do good ended up leaving and realizing at some point it was just it asked it asked too much. They couldn't do enough good.
0: Interesting. What were some of the things that you personally would like to go back and have a do over? Changing your position and some of the things that you said and you felt at the time that you felt right now, you'd like to go back and, and change.
2: You know, I've thought about that a fair amount. And obviously, uh, I, mean, everyone, I think everyone's sensible realizes one's made mistakes in one's life. I, generally, I think I became too partisan, too embedded in this kind of comfortable conservative uh, world. I don't mean comfortable financially particularly, but just kind of intellectually comfortable, you know, a lot of smart people on your side and you are reading each other's arguments and some issues I took that, positions I took that were controversial, especially in foreign policy, I don't regret actually. I, mean, I may regret particular aspects, but in general, I think that was the right view of the world. I think it still is for that matter. But on a lot of some of the economic issues, a lot of the social issues, there was just a kind of oblivion. I, I think we just told ourselves certain things were true. We didn't listen to people of good faith on the other side. I think on race, I was pretty sort of blind to how I, I was not bigoted, I don't believe. And, you know, we, tr- we thought our policies would help African-Americans just like um, other Americans and so forth. But I don't think we understood in policing, for example, how bad the situation just was. And in reality, we didn't want to hear it
0: mm-hmm.
2: and told ourselves, eh, it's not such a big problem. So there are uh, individual cases. I I guess Sarah Palin, I vaguely, I'm, I'm, I get more credit for Palin or, or more blame maybe <laughs> than I deserve. I was for John McCain, picking Joe Lieberman as his running mate. This is interesting for you since you're a centrist uh, man in the middle type. I wrote a piece in the New York Times on Sunday a week before the convention saying, we can't you pick Lieberman. It will be a, the only way to have a chance to beat Barack Obama. And it'll be, you know, unity for the country. And, and they're both very impressive people. The McCain people just had no interest in that. Well, McCain did, but his people thought it can't do it. Republican convention. Lieberman's not pro-life. I think he probably could have. But anyway, at that point, I said, OK, well, maybe you just throw the long wall and go for someone none of us knows well. I'd met her once. But, you know, she was a pretty popular, young, dynamic governor of Alaska. She turned out to be a total lightweight and uh, and an unfortunate pick. Though so I will say this. And maybe, in a way, a little bit of a harbinger of what was going to happen in terms of the populist right. I think that's a fair point to make, that the the sort of dumbing down that Palin represented, you might say, was the bad sign for what was to come. Having said that, if you actually look at the campaign, she wasn't a brilliant candidate, but she took McCain's positions on things. She was not a right-wing, you know, she wasn't a nativist. She was pro-immigration.
1: When she was first introduced, I got the political appeal of her. Yeah. I thought it was actually a fairly smart choice. It just wasn't enough there, there.
2: People sometimes say to me, didn't pale and start at all. I don't think so. It's hard to know really what... Look, every party, especially when there are only two of them in, in a huge country like ours, is going to have elements and, and tendencies and groups that are sort of distasteful or have a tendency to go off the deep end. God knows I met them when I came to Washington and served in the Reagan and Bush administration. And some of them, look, if they were your allies, you didn't, we didn't probably call them out on things as much as we should have. But we did have lines. And we did think that on the whole, if we tolerated certain things we didn't love, we also were helping take the edge off and and get these people sort of more integrated, if I could put it that way, assimilated into the mainstream. And when David Duke, for example, made the runoff in Louisiana, and I think that was 91, when we were in the Bush White House, as kind of the Republican, it was not partisan, but as a Republican gubernatorial candidate, we were appalled. And George H.W. Bush went out and denounced him and ended up urging people in Louisiana to vote for the Democrat, Edward Edwards, or, you know, vote for the crook, not for the not for the KKK candidate. So we all had lines, I felt. I mean, I remember saying to some reporter in 92, when Buchanan challenged us that I wouldn't vote for Buchanan in the general election, I'd vote for Clinton, you know, even though I was a very loyal Reagan-Bush Republican. So maybe I've always had a little, so I don't know. Anyway, I, th- I think we all did try to maintain certain boundaries I'm not sure we always did so with perfect success, but I think both parties tried to until the last few years. I guess one of the big changes, you know, Barack, I was thinking about this the other day, Barack Obama in 2008, it came out again, fairly or unfairly, but it's just that he had attended sermons, you know, church with the Jeremiah Wright presided over. And again, without even getting into the merits of all that, I think there were some pretty said some pretty bad things, but it was exaggerated a little too at the time. But Obama gave a speech as a candidate where he said, Again, who knows whether he, you know, was quite as unaware of what was happening as he said, but he said, but the more important thing is he said it. He said, this is unacceptable. These things that Jeremiah Wright, whom I've known and otherwise sort of respected, these things that it now turns out he said, are beyond the pale. I repudiate them. He didn't invite Jeremiah Wright to be at his it was an inauguration or something. I remember there was a bit of a boo-ha about that and there was a Democratic convention and all that. Mm-hmm. And that's a healthy thing for your politics. Maybe it requires a little bit of hypocrisy on the part of people, you know, leaving behind people they were nicer to 10 or 20 years before. But it was a way of signaling, look, we're not going to have that kind of rhetoric in the White House
0: when I'm president. So let's cut to today, because I know you talk to a lot of people in Washington who are still doing the job they haven't abandoned yet they haven't left thinking it's hopeless i know a lot of people have but when you talk to someone and feel free to name names or not but when you talk to someone who right now seems to be legitimizing the crazy behind closed doors are they like look bill you know it got me reelected this is the way i this is what i'm doing for it. it's politic politics you know how it goes uh, what are their actual feelings inside? Do they feel like they're doing the right thing for the country or do they say, look, this is the deal? So I think some of both.
2: And I think people are very different. I mean, honestly, there are some who just are transactional or who have just decided this is my path to success. There are people who, you know, one thing I've learned in life if you sort of rationalize something to yourself for a while, you end up believing it. So you did, you started off knowing that it was transactional, as it were, you were just going to say a few things to stay in the good graces of certain voters. And after you said it enough for a couple of years, you kind of, you know, that's a good point that they're making there, you know, and, and here's a study that shows that, you know, immigrants are committing all these crimes. And so what starts as rhetoric could become sort of a belief. You know, I think they would say, yeah, look, I mean, a, we have to say these things to stay here, but once we get back in power, we're going to be responsible. We'll be able to handle these people. And, you know, that wasn't crazy to say I didn't support Trump in 2016, and I thought it was ridiculous to do so, but uh, it wasn't crazy for people to vote for Trump thinking they'll keep him under control. I think by 2018, that was getting a little hard to believe. By 2020, it was kind of incredible, honestly. And by after January 6th, it's now, I think, kind of incredible to say that uh, these Republicans are, uh, you know, they're just kind of toying with this stuff. Uh, It's obvious that whatever their intentions originally were, They've miscalculated and the, you know, the, what's the metaphor I'm looking for? The alligators eating the person who's writing it or whatever. I mean, it's, it's become the opposite of what they claimed it would be. I mean, the tougher moral choice, I'll just say this. I mean, and this is a genuine problem, so... Liz Cheney, I think she's behaved very well. She voted for impeachment in the last three, four months. She voted for impeachment. She stood up. She said she couldn't vote for Trump in 2024, which is a pretty big deal for the number three House Republican to say about someone who could well be the nominee, obviously. That's good. On the other hand, she remains a Republican in the House. She'll, of course, support Kevin McCarthy for speaker, presumably in 2022. Kevin McCarthy voted to overturn the election. So I like Liz Cheney. I very much hope she beats back the challenge from the Trumpist in Wyoming. I think it'd be good for the country if she does. I think it'd be pretty bad if the whole party can't, you know, is, it goes so Trumpy that they defeat Cheney. Then you've got one, one of our two major parties gone totally kind of authoritarian and nativist and they're that democratic. On the other hand, to support Liz Cheney is kind of to say that it's okay if Kevin McCarthy become Speaker. And that's not something I'm okay with either. Now, in the case of Liz Cheney, it doesn't matter if no Democrats are going to win that seat. So I can in good conscience say I'm for Liz Cheney in that Wyoming seat. But what if that were a swing seat? You know, I think it would be, so I think a lot of people who are serious are trying to grapple with some of the tensions between you want to help the Republicans who are decent. And there are some obviously, but you don't want Republicans to run anything much. I don't at least for the next few years. And so how do you, there's a little bit of a, a trade off there, you know? And so, there are these genuine moral tensions, I would say. And I think you saw that a lot in the foreign policy community under
0: Trump. It must make for an interesting moment in front of the mirror in the morning. Yeah, I think it does. And, uh,
2: and look, and I also think there's no one uniform position among us, never Trumpers. Some people have rethought a lot of their previous allegiance to conservatism and decided a lot of that was mistaken or, or they were very one-sided. Others have said, no, most of it was okay. I just think it went off the rails here in twenty. 20- 15, 2016. And, you know, I think those are reasonable intellectual disagreements. For me, the key going forward, though, and I think you alluded to this at the very beginning, and it's the spirit of this show, I think, is We need to have an alliance of people who believe in liberal democracy against extremism, against illiberalism of the left and the right. And there are times in the history of the last century when the left was a greater threat in different countries at different times. And there are times when the right was a greater threat in different countries at different times. And right now, I think it's pretty unambiguous for all that I don't like certain things that the left wing of the Democratic Party is doing or saying that the right is the threat and we need to therefore either deny the Republican Party power or, or really fight hard to change the character of the Republicans who are going to be exercising power over the next few years. Maybe there'll be third parties and stuff, but for now, we have two major parties in this country. It'd be bad for the country if one of the two parties goes nativist, authoritarian, bigoted, uh, and so forth, demagogic. But if it's gone that way, it's gone that way. And at that point, you just have to fight it, I think. That's why I supported Biden and why I was kind of impatient, I mean, some people, uh, Larry Hogan, who I like, the governor of Maryland, said he wasn't going to vote for Trump. That was good. But he was writing in Ronald Reagan. (laughs) There's something silly about that. I mean, if you're at a real moment of crisis for liberal democracy, and Joe Biden is a decent person who has a program that's well within the bounds of democratic reasonableness and propriety and respect for the rule of law and so forth, you need to support him. So I was pretty impatient last year with Republicans who were getting very cute about how even my friends of mine, you know, who were anti-Trump to their credit and had paid a price for being anti-Trump, but still weren't willing to bite the bullet and say, we've got to support Biden for now.
0: Yeah. So Bill, in 2020, were you voting for Joe Biden or were you voting against Donald Trump? Don't answer that. We'll be back in 30 seconds. A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Co Media.
1: Currently 21 years old. And
0: today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take of care smile. of yourself
1: because the world needs you and Trust your me, voice. Trust me,
0: every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dreams.
1: fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is
2: really being it questioned. You're
0: going to stop me from playing the piano. She
1: buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't
0: love humans. We never did, we never will, we just find one. The beauty that are of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you.
1: And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at com slash a moment of your time.
0: Bill, what's the deal? Did you vote for Joe Biden or did you vote against Donald Trump in the last election?
2: Some of both. I mean, I'm going to primarily against Donald Trump. But I also, in fact, our little organization did urge independents and in states where independents can vote in either primary, to vote in the Democratic primary in 2020, once it became clear there was no real challenge to Trump that was possible on the Republican side, to vote for Biden or for whoever the moderate was, who turned out to be Biden, against uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, and nothing personal about Elizabeth or Warren or Bernie Sanders. But we thought it important, A, that the Democrats nominate someone who have a good chance of beating Trump, and B, from our policy point of view, Biden is just closer to where I am, to where most of us were, than the Sanders or Warren, so I think we were lucky to get Biden as the alternative to Trump. I'm not sure any other Democrat could have beaten Trump, honestly. So the irony is Biden, who was passed over, who was kind of looked down on a little bit by the Obama people, and then of course Hillary gets to be the nominee, not not Biden, even though he's the VP. You know, ends up being the person. As I say, I'm not sure anyone else beats Trump in 2020, and I think so far he's been a good president, pretty good president. I differ with uh, with him on some things, but with a pretty serious administration. If you had told me 10 years ago, I'm going to be sitting here sort of hoping that the Biden administration succeeds and worrying about different mistakes he's making. And, you know, I I guess I wouldn't really have expected that, but (laughs) there you go.
0: You had talked before about January 6th. Obviously, you feel like many of us that that was a pretty pivotal day. In your case, you did something about it. What is the Republican Accountability Project?
2: So we wanted to make sure that there was some you know support really money basically uh, campaign money for those republicans who didn't support obviously the insurrection didn't vote to overturn the results and then much more so even voted to impeach donald trump a week later that was 10 republicans in the house or voted to convict him in the senate after his term was over and that was seven republicans in the senate and given the massive ability of the trump republicans to fundraise We thought it was important to signal that there would be some support for those who went the other way. We don't have quite as much ability as the Trump people to fundraise. But we have, you know, there's some big donors and some lot of small donors who wanted to show support for those Republicans. So that's now going forward. The Republican Accountability Project also is looking for good candidates who are running in different races, new candidates and open seats and so forth, who want to take the party beyond Trump. And there are candidates showing up like that. We'll see how they do and we'll see you know, how much we can help them. They're going to have to make their case primarily, obviously, on their own. And right now, the party electorate doesn't look terribly favorable in most places to them, but that could change a year from now or two years from now.
0: I can't help but bring this up because I want to make sure I heard this correctly. You, You were talking to Brian Williams on MSNBC over the weekend, and I think you said that you fully expect Trump to run for the presidency in three years?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think if I had to bet, I would bet that he would. I mean, I, I think he, he may not, of course, and Guy's health might not permit it and so forth. But I don't know, everyone seems to have the attitude that he's just kind of playing around for now, but he'll just let DeSantis or Hawley or one of these compents or some bunch of people run and kind of compete for his mantle. But I don't know. Why would he just run? What is he? I mean, he thinks he has a decent chance. He would probably think he would have a decent chance of winning the nomination. he have a good chance of winning the nomination.
0: Well, he thinks he won the last one, right? Right,
2: a decent chance of winning the presidency. He would have some chance.
1: I think it will depend in part on what happens in 2022.
2: Yeah, yeah, very much so. So I'm not like predicting this as a done thing. I'm just saying, I think people are a little too quick to kind of talk about all these other characters. And I saw a poll came out today. It's funny. Uh, so we're talking what, late April and um, it showed, I think Trump had the support of like 45% of the Republican electorate. And someone emailed it to me who's more pro-Trump than I was, but not pro-Trump now, not after January 6th. So he he wants Trump not to run and not to win. It was like, this is great, a majority of the Republican electorate doesn't really want Trump to run. So like 55% don't want it to run, but 45% want him to run and will vote for him if he runs. Usually if you start out with 45%, you're in pretty good shape, you know, in a multi-candidate field. So I, I look at those polls and I think uh, maybe it'll fade. Maybe that'll be different in twenty uh, a year from now in April 2022. Maybe it'll be different in April 2023. Maybe Trump will seem like yesterday's news and people will be rethinking some
0: of the things he did and what happened. But So you don't even see January 6th affecting him going forward in that way?
2: Well, I think the empirical data is is that it didn't change the numbers much.
0: Let's look at that for a second. I frankly don't think Trump is an idiot. I think that politics is a chess game, right? You have to think many moves ahead. So what do you think his game plan was that led us to January 6th? Was he looking for the mob to take over the country? Tell me about three moves ahead that day. What was in his mind?
2: The key was denying the legitimacy of his defeat. Because it was very important to his image out there that he's the winner. Romney and McCain, and Bush, even though Bush won, are losers, and he is the winner. So there had to be enough just repetition and manufacture of evidence as to the illegitimacy of his defeat that the election was stolen. That they could live off that for the next year or two or three, and he could be the guy who's coming back from an unjust defeat. You know, Trump thinks in this kind of cinematic TV show kind of way, right? I mean, the comeback guy who's going to put it right in 2024. I think maybe it started as that, and he didn't really think, you know, they should, like, stampede the Capitol. But he certainly never turned that off, and he was certainly happy to indulge in that rhetoric, I mean there's a lot of accounts from that day and I remember you know watching it and that he you know kind of enjoyed watching what's happening on TV this was kind of a dramatic did he think he could literally and really overturn the election
0: did he think we were all going to
2: say oops okay you can stay I think not but you know what I mean I look back at that and I'm a little freaked out at how close, I'm not sure that it came close that he could stay, but it came close to having total chaos in the country. That is, if Brad Raffensperger had been different in Georgia, and if the Michigan people had gone in the direction it looked like they, Trump was pushing them to go, and if, you know, a few votes had moved in Arizona, and if they hadn't done the right thing, actually do see in the Republicans there. I mean, it could have been genuine chaos, genuine constitutional crisis. I imagine Trump, deep down, sort of would have thought he ultimately wouldn't have won that either, but it would have been a huge chaotic crisis he would have been unjustly deprived of his chance, and he would have capitalized on that resentment for fundraising and for his own political strength for the next three, four years. I kind of think that's what was in his mind. What's most amazing for me on the impeachment, I, I sort of think the Democrats could have emphasized this a little more in the articles of impeachment. The incitement was terrible. The two months of incitement, the actual incitement on on January 6th. The sitting there and doing nothing while it was happening in a way is, is worse. He's president of the United States. He has the capacity and the obligation. I mean, think of any president. If there's a crisis of this magnitude, you call everyone together in the situation room, everyone gets on the lines, the, you know, visual at the conference, call, you mobilize everything you can. You could talk to the defense department, you talk to the justice department, you take care of our capital against people who are marauding through it. And the fact that he didn't is so revealing, I think. And it, it didn't even occur to him, it seemed.
0: But that wasn't the first thing that he did for his own benefit rather than for the people of the country. And by the way, I should let you know, I'm sitting here hosting a show called Meet Me in the Middle. I was a pretty staunch Republican a while ago. Hmm. I got pushed out emotionally and otherwise, and rethought a lot of things, kind of like the way you have. And yeah. I, I want to ask you a question that we asked Michael Steele last week and, and get your perspective. If the folks who broke into the Capitol on January 6th were handed the keys to the government, other than anointing Trump back in power, what did they want? And what would they do if they were in charge?
2: You know, I think pretty much what Trump would have asked or told them to do, and some of those things would have been maybe minor and or pointless or, or but they could have been pretty illiberal and pretty hostile to basic civil liberties. I mean, those you know, this is what four years of Trump really conditioned some chunk of his supporters. I don't know whether it's 10 million or 20 million or 30 million, not 74 million, but not 74,000 either, right? I mean, some number between in the millions. To have contempt for the civil liberties of their opponents, to think that force is Justified, at least in some cases. Certainly, that uh, there's this massive fraud going on with the deep state. I mean, leaving aside even the QAnon and conspiracy, the true conspiracy craziness. And I—that's where I really do worry. The liberalism is stronger than people. Some people look at it and think, "Oh, a bunch of kind of unhappy, weirdo people, and you know, letting off steam." Terrible, what happened? Don't get me wrong. Ugh. But nonetheless, not fundamentally the case. I don't know you. And now, for me, another proof is what's happened since. January 6th in the state legislatures. These pretty sustained, systematic, focused attempts to cut back on voting of groups that don't support Republicans as much as other groups. And that's not you know just like letting off steam. That's pretty actually careful. You have to work a little bit to actually come up with your draft legislation. You have to spend money to try to persuade people to, to pass it. You have to be somewhat organized. And so this whole conservative infrastructure has become I won't say anti-democratic, but they don't care much about democracy, willing to sacrifice democracy for the sake of what they take to be their deeper interests, which is some kind of odd preserving the America they grew up in against all these changes, all these demographic groups, all these other institutions that they have come to just fear and hate. And so, I think David Frum put it that way, maybe, that they love conservatism more than they love democracy. I don't think that's fair to conservatism, it's not conservatism they love, it's that they love, I don't know what exactly, you know? They love the America they want to be part of and that they feel comfortable in more than they love the actual existing democratic America, which has a lot of diversity
0: and a lot of conflict. And we want to think that politicians are actually governing. We want to think that it isn't a game. Let's take a look at games football, deflate gate, do whatever you can to win, baseball, where you let people read pictures with cameras and cheat your way onto base. But you don't think that that's going to be part of politics. These are the people that we've chosen to lead our society. It's bizarre that we're adopting this kind of sensibility of politicians. So what, what do we do about it other than, well, try to tell as many people that this is what we see and hope they see it too? Yeah,
2: and if you take those two sports examples and leaving aside exactly who did what and so forth, it would be as if they didn't deny that they had done them. They sort of ended up proudly saying, yes, we've done them, and we want to do it again next time. We want to change the rules so the next time we can get away with it, right? I and mean, that's literally what they're sort of, their current position. And incidentally, it wasn't wrong to do it. It was uh, totally necessary because the other side was cheating even more. And Here's the example. I mean, think of, if you do the analogy, it's so much worse, really, what's been happening in our politics than the kind of routine let's call it cheating, which wasn't routine, but I mean, the cheating around the margins by you know a few people in one game or one episode or, or one or one team. In that respect, you do need to have the basic respect for rules of the game or else the whole system starts to collapse. Trump has legitimized that contempt for people who play by the rules of the game.
0: Bill, thank you so much for joining us. This was a, a wonderful show. How can people follow you?
2: Uh, thank you. Was, I really enjoyed uh, the conversation. You can uh, go to bulwark.com which is our website, which is never Trump kind of moderates, conservatives and liberals. And then I'm on Twitter at at Bill Crystal. And I try to link to things that I think are worth reading. So if you follow that, you'll get a lot of what I at least think is, is worth thinking about.
0: And to you listening, don't forget to come back next week and hear Bill Crystal part two. And don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't have to hunt around for the next Meet Me in the Middle. Thank you to our producer and editor Joey Salvia. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick, and the executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halper. Everybody, stay healthy and open your eyes. We'll see you next week, everybody. It will be okay. From Kirko Media. Media for your mind.